Hello and welcome to To The Point, the Portland podcast. I'm Gabriel Milland. I'm one of the partners at Portland where I lead research. I'm joined by comedian, writer and former political advisor, Matt Ford. Matt is one of the UK's best known political commentators and he's the lead writer for the reboot of Spitting Image. He provides the voices for not just Boris Johnson, but also Donald Trump and Keir Starmer. From his hugely popular podcasts, to his books, to his West End shows, Matt has carved himself a niche as someone who has been a political insider, but retains the perspective of the young man who grew up quite a long way from power in Nottingham. He combines thoughtful insights into the state of politics with a determination not to get trapped in cynicism and the idea that all politicians are corrupt. At the time of recording, as the reverberations various Christmas parties swamp UK politics, that's a position which is becoming perhaps less and less common. This is To The Point. So, Matt, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for, for such a generous introduction. No, well, it's the very least you deserve. I mean, I've long been a fan, a listener to your radio shows, to uh, paid money to see you <laughs> do stand-up, real money. Um, it's, you know, it's a fast-moving moment, and this is a podcast that uh, doesn't want to be just trapped and where we are now, but it's an interesting time, isn't it? We're in the, the second Friday in December, so... We've been in crime week all this week, and some crimes have been more prominent than others, it seems. How do things feel to you? I think the mood has markedly changed. I think during the pandemic, people basically forgave mistakes and understandably were primarily concerned about survival of themselves and their loved ones and financial survival. And the government was able to, in many ways, deal with those fears. So they remained relatively popular. And of course... The Labour Party's been in a state for a long time. Now, as life is starting to return, I think politics is returning to normal and people's political sensibilities are returning. And I think people hate being lied to and they hate being taken for fools. And Boris Johnson really has clearly been lying to people and I think that is driving people mad. And people are starting to come to terms now. It's not that... I don't necessarily think people were kind of desperate to immediately look back and reassess how they felt during COVID because I think instinctively people look forward and they want to move on for God's sake but that whole thing over the Christmas party and the footage that was leaked felt like a group of people that when they should have been taking something really seriously weren't and were behaving in a way that was disrespectful to the sacrifices that people had made some with their lives so I think the timing of this couldn't be worse because it's come out at a time when people are being more political again in their thinking. And um, they've kind of rightly been punished for it. I mean, I, I should also say, seeing Allegra Stratton distraught on her doorstep also makes you realise that however angry we get and however people in powerful positions should be held to account, once someone has resigned and they're clearly distressed, you know, that's it. I, I, it does feel slightly unfair that she's been made to pay for this in ways that perhaps other people haven't. From the point of view of someone like me, who was, you know, a lobby journalist and, you know, worked in number 10, 
it really does kind of underline how much of a blood sport politics is because the people who have were pursuing Allegra and other this week are, you know, are former colleagues of hers. You know, Robert Peston, Paul Brand, people who broke the story um, for ITV are people who she worked with very closely. And it's a kind of reminder of what a merciless business this can actually be. And it should be because you can't then, you know, the the worst thing would be to have people like Robert Peston and others at ITV say, oh, well, we know Allegra, so we can't we can't really run the story. The job of the media, of the news media, is to hold the government to account without fear or favour. So in a weird way, it's reassuring as a citizen that that happens. Yeah, I suppose people will carry on thinking the worst of, you know, Laura Koonsberg, who gets dreadful amounts of abuse. But there is so much cynicism around politics. And this is kind of one of the things that I wanted to chat through with you a bit. Is it because that you've seen it from the inside that, you know, there are a lot of political comedians who spend all their time saying, you know, all politicians are bent, all politicians are corrupt, you know, without giving people an easy ride, you're not like that. Why do you think that is? I think partly it's that I worked in it. I just think in general anyway, I think even as a kid, I just think most people have a level of empathy where they go, it looks like a really difficult job. And instinctively, I don't think most people are bad. And that applies to politicians as well. Then having worked in it and having seen politicians of all parties that are dedicated public servants, and I've thought about this more recently than ever before, politicians are different to the rest of us. They do have character traits that the rest of us don't possess. They require a level of stamina and resilience that really I think most people could not stomach. And it is a hugely exposing arena to go into, even local politics. It's ferocious. And you have to not only have, you know, not only really believe in something, but you have to deal with so much failure. So much of politics is losing. And I think that requires people who are so driven and so dedicated to change the world for the better that I find them hugely impressive. So that's my starting point. But of course, they're human beings, so there'll always be incompetence and failure and nepotism and jealousy and all the things that make for great comedy if you're doing political stuff on left and right. So they're fair game in terms of topics and obviously silly ideas and bad ideas and fuck-ups or whatever. But in general, I think most politicians are good people and I think they're—I actually think they're remarkable individuals for choosing to spend their life in that way. And I never really... Obviously, some of them are... I mean, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious either and they want to be powerful, but... But what you want to use that power for, and I think the vast majority in the mainstream are exceptional individuals. Do you think anything has changed? Now, I'm very struck when I go out and, and, and talk to people, you know, in focus groups and things like that. Uh, and there was some data which came out last week on this, just how big a change expenses was. You know, you ask people, well, how should we pay for the NHS? And they say, uh, well, we should cut MPs' expenses. You know, that just seemed to be such a moment in British politics. I was working as a journalist at the time, and it, it just felt like the walls were closing in. It was, uh, I mean, I remember, where was I working at the time? I was working in public affairs at the time, but still had, you know, friends in both parties. And I remember being in one of the bars in Strangers Bar when it was all breaking, and the kind of ashen-faced look on the, on the MPs thinking, God, what have I claimed for? I mean, equally, part of the problem with the word expenses is, it, it, the way it's structured... A lot of their expenses are staff costs and things. So people can look at the record. And some MPs look like they've got huge expense bills, but that includes their staff costs. And I just, I think the way that we've talked about expenses, uh, the scandal is something completely different, and, and lots of that was genuinely outrageous. 
Um, although I did have a little bit of sympathy for them because there's no doubt that at the time the culture was very much that the fees office basically said, oh, you can claim for stuff. Um, and whenever people say, oh, you know, the, the politician more corrupt than the rest of us, I'm like, yeah, but if you took any, I genuinely think if it was like jury service and you took a random sample of 600, a weighted sample of 650 people, you stuck them in the House of Commons and gave them those rules, you would get a similar outcome. Yeah. I really think that. I don't think politicians are any more or less corrupt. I think, obviously, the closer you get to power and money, the easier it is to... There's more temptation. And Really, it was almost like institutional because they were encouraged by the fees office to claim for stuff, to not have to have receipts. I mean, the temptation for some, of course, would have been overwhelming, particularly those that feel that at the time they weren't paid enough. Yeah. But it did do huge damage. You know, it's still something that people talk about now. Yeah. Do you think that politics and humour sit well together? Do you think? Do you think we want funny politicians? I mean, I, I'm, you know, before doing this, I did a bit of research, and there's a huge sort of political science literature, which is contains many of the least funny things I've ever read in my life uh, about whether humour works as a political tactic on bringing people on side, on attacking people, and things like that. Do you think people want funny politicians or do you think they want serious politicians? Do you think people are interested in political humour? Does it work? Absolutely it does. And I think there's a diff I think the ideal politician is a really serious, impressive person who on occasion is also very funny. I think if you're funny all the time, then people sense that you're not serious, that you're not taking a crisis seriously and then that becomes offensive. If you're serious all the time, people think, God... You know, I, th I think a lot of people don't realise, and I, I don't think the public actually explicitly think about this, but you kind of look to the Prime Minister in a way. Even if you hate their guts, there's a sense that you're setting the tone of the country. And people want to think that, one, you're good at the job, two, in a way that you're enjoying it. You, people don't want to see the job be a burden for people. It clearly was for Theresa May. It clearly was for Gordon Brown. I think that makes people uncomfortable. It creates a sense that things aren't right. And however big or small, that I, I think in some way that, that affects the mood of the nation. Um, and humour is a great way to pop that. It makes you feel better. And also what it does is say, I mean, in human interaction, it's valued. You know, funny friends are the ones that get invited to parties. The, the people you want to hang around with are the people that make you laugh. If a leader possesses that ability, in a way, the fondness it creates for them, even if you'd never vote for them. You know, William Hague is so popular with so many people because he really made them laugh and he makes them feel good. And there is like, I mean, in a way, it's a form of medicine without um, quoting the old phrase. But I think it makes you really like people. And so much of politics is people. And I think people get lost in that. You get lost in ideology and ideas, and they're very important. But in the end, it's about making people like you. And there are very few things as effective as humour. Yeah. Now, I've known a few funny politicians, and Prime Minister can be very funny in person, <laughs> uh, and he can be very funny in public too. Who's the funniest politician you've ever come across, in your view? I think William Hague. Really naturally funny. And in a way, like a really good comedian, he understood what was funny about him and used that. And first, he's got speed of wit. I mean, he's one of the fastest people I've ever met. And he's very funny. You know, I often think about some of the really big comedians and how odd their voice... Kevin Bridges has a really distinctive voice. Probably the best comedian at the moment. Really distinctive voice. My mate, John Richardson, a, a really distinctive voice. William Hague has a really distinctive voice. And he used that. 
delivery. Uh, too great comedic effect. You know, it, and what he's a really good example of is he's not just a guy who goes, right, I need some gags to make myself feel normal. All his jokes were were an extension of him. They're a, they're a version of him. They're not just, oh, it's a joke anyone else could have told. They suit his style. They suit his personality. And I think that's where a lot of politicians get it wrong with humour, is they just want a gag. And it's like, well, find out what's funny about you, and then and then those jokes work better. And I don't think there's a politician alive better than William Hague for understanding that. William Hague's got funny bones, hasn't he? Yeah. He just, he, you know, he just understands it. And, and the accent is, you know, he deploys it very well. Is Keir Starmer a funny guy? I mean, you do his voice for Spitting Image. I'm trying to, you know, Keir Starmer will use a gag, but it's, I've never met him. Um, I find it hard to believe that he's someone who is comfortable, you know, cracking one-liners in a lift. Do you think he is? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, he laughs a lot. Whenever I've uh, interviewed him, he's a good laugh. I mean, the first time I interviewed him, he was great. He was very funny and a really good storyteller. I think... He obviously takes the job very seriously. Leadership does sometimes change people's behaviour, and, and not necessarily in a good or bad way, but you obviously think, well, I'm in charge now, I'm the boss. Yeah. And, you know, people can understand that in any workplace. When someone becomes the boss, sometimes they do become a bit more serious. And I think, obviously, the, he wants the contrast with Boris, I think, that he is the serious guy and Boris is the unserious guy. But, he's, I mean, he is a funny bloke. It's, I think it's just that he's taken over at a time that is a very, very serious time. And COVID really, for Keir Starmer, hasn't been a time to be sort of, um, you know, for megalols, really. Um, no. But he is funny. The, the way, And obviously the difference is, is he's funny, but he hasn't really necessarily shown the country yet that he's, that he's really funny. So from a spitting image point of view, um, in a way he's not funny. And therefore you have to play on the fact that he's almost... Not John Major, but you're doing. It's that sort of area that you're going into. You're 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 making him more bureaucratic. You're you're playing on that perception that actually it's very serious and quite verbose, and that in any given scenario he will, you know, find a bureaucratic answer to Christmas dinner or whatever. Yeah. Um, getting a pint in a pub. You know, I'll convene a subcommittee of the National Executive to report back. You know, it's that sort of like <laughs> that's like an easy way to do a spitting image. Um, Keir Starmer sketch. Is, it, is that how you do him? I mean, you do him as, you know, the kind of the prosecutorial, slightly dry, procedural, slightly remote figure? Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's, it's part legal, part kind of Westminster, part Labour, you know, that sort of thing. Um, we will convene a committee that reports back, you know, it's all that sort of thing. You can almost, even though it's one of those things where, even though he actually probably doesn't say that, it's one of those things where it feels like he says stuff like that. And I yeah. think sometimes that's where comedy lives is you play upon a perception that um, people go, oh, yeah, I can sort of see him doing that. We also do him as a superhero in uh, Spitting Images, Foxman. You know, he's a superhero with <laughs> you know, sort of tedious answers. You know, someone's getting mugged and uh, he knows the, the specific bylaw and all that sort of thing and tries to set up um, mediation or whatever to a, you know, to a knife fight. Yeah, which is you know, I think again, people could sort of see that there's a there's a grain of satirical truth in there. Now you're you're a very proud East Midlander and a very proud uh, Nottingham person, and <laughs> from West Bridgeford originally, which just outside Nottingham. Kind of well, I went to secondary school in West Bridgeford, but I'm from a place called Snenton, which is right in the inner city. Right. If you brought Keir Starmer into a pub in Snenton, 
what would what would they make of him? You talked a moment ago about you know people want a prime minister who, like Tony Blair, kind of felt that the job suited him. You know that he 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 was comfortable in his skin as prime minister. David Cameron had that a bit, maybe a bit too comfortable. <laughs> but you know what would people make of in a pub in inner city Nottingham? Keir Starmer if he came in and ordered a pint of Shipstones. <laughs> Good knowledge. I think they'd like him. And I, I think there are a number of reasons to that. I think, one, they would probably like most politicians. I think they'd like Boris. I think they'd like Jacob Rees-Mogg. I think they'd like Tony Blair. I think they'd like Lisa Nandy. Politicians are quite sociable people, a lot of them. And uh, they know how to talk to people. And I think there's that. The one thing that really strikes me about Keir Starman, the reason why I think people would like him is, my abiding impression of him, certainly the last time I interviewed him, was that, I think he's probably the most decent person in politics at the moment. I think he really is salt of the earth. He really, really does care. He's a man of really deep values. Almost so much that he's almost closer to someone that would be like a charity worker or go into the priesthood or something like that. He really, really cares about people on, 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 in a very profound and meaningful way. And I know a lot of politicians really do, but he really, really does. And you, you almost, you can sense his emotion. You really can. And I think people pick up on that sort of thing. They know when people care. And I think one-to-one that comes across a lot more. So um, he wouldn't be the life and soul of the party, but I think people would leave thinking that, wow, you know, what a fundamentally decent person. Do you think people want their politicians to be the life and soul of the party? What? You know, we're in a serious moment here and we have had, you know, there are politicians who are very good at cheering people up. Boris is certainly one of them. Ronald Reagan was one of them. Do you think we're entering a moment when people really do want that rigour and that seriousness? I think people want someone really impressive. I think they want... It's the most important job in the country and, and both parties really have not always served up the most impressive individual in that party who really then should be a contender to be one of the most impressive people in the country. And I think that's the main thing, is that people know you're not going to get everything right. They want to feel that they like you, and humour's a good way of doing that. But they want someone impressive. They want to go, wow. They really know what they're doing. And it's not necessarily about whether you're serious or... um, I think people want to feel that, God, that's someone at the top of their field. That's someone who's really good at this. Blair definitely had that. For a lot of people, Thatcher had it. For a time, I think Cameron felt like that. Cameron felt like an impressive guy. Um, and I think Keir Starmer is impressive. People know yeah. that he had a phenomenal career and a very important job. They know he's on top of stuff. Whether they want people to be the life and soul of the party... I mean, equally, if you think of what the alternatives are, the worst thing is when people feel sorry for you. And people have to be so careful of not doing that. And I think various Labour leaders have fallen into that trap of people going, oh, bless. And that is... Once you're pathetic, you're better off being loathed than that. Yeah, yeah. At his lowest moments, that was where Gordon Brown most definitely was, it seemed to me. Yeah, and Ed Miliband, and at times even Corbyn, before people cottoned on to what he really was, it was all just a bit, oh, God. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, apart from anything else, it's insane that Labour, at times in its history, picks appalling leaders that have no hope of winning. I mean, it really is disgraceful, and it's an insult to the country to do that to it. 
I mean, a friend of mine who was an MP at the same time as him said that she used to kind of have lunch with him sometimes because she looked so lonely uh, sitting in, you know, in, in the stranger's cafeteria or, or in the tea room. But it, 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 he was such a lunatic fringe figure uh, at the time. And people, I don't think, understand that no. at well, all. I, th- I think he was deliberately lonely as well. I think there's a whole performative meekness you know, like there's old priests in the church that used to wear white makeup to make themselves look more woebegotten, you know, as if that made them holier. Yeah. The whole affectation of eating cold beans out of a tin, you just think, this is a guy rebelling against his quite comfortable upbringing. I, I think so much of it was that. Couldn't come to terms with the fact that... I mean, that was my other experience as well, the Corbyn thing. All the people I know that really liked him were, were pretty well-to-do people. They were, they, were, they were at the more affluent end of the left. All the people I knew that couldn't bear him were working class. You know, it was... It, really, it was really interesting that the people who knew what the working class people needed more than anything uh, weren't working class at all. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to have a brief chat about is you identify William Hague as a genuinely funny guy and, you know, Michael Gove can be very funny. Uh, Boris Johnson can be very funny as well. Theresa May, less so. Um, but there are lots of kind of quite fun, you know, Ronald Reagan had some great gags as well. I mean, they were very politically slanted. You know, what's the worst thing that you can hear? I'm the government and I'm here to help, that kind of thing. <laughs> Donald Trump carried himself like a stand-up um, a lot of the time. His his shows, which is what his rallies were, were, you know, him kind of doing improv for, yeah. for two hours, it seemed to me. So there's a kind of tradition in the US and here of right-wing politicians being quite funny. But so many comedians tend to be left-wing. And, of course, we've been in this whole thing where the government has been trying to kind of have a row with the BBC over left-wing comedians and things like the Daily Mash getting cancelled and the Daily Mail going on about this quite a lot, etc. But it does seem so many more comedians kind of cleave to the left rather than the right. You know, Radio 4 panel shows, very often their idea of balance is, you know, a member of the SWP on both panels. You know, (laughs) Jeremy Hardy and Mark Steele. Why is it that, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're right-wing, you're kind of maybe more likely to go into accountancy than stand-up comedian, maybe. But why is it that so many more comedians tend to be of the left? I think there are a lot of conservative comedians. I think the difference is, is that political comedy has been quite left-wing. I know lots of comedians who are conservatives who don't want to talk about it. They do a different type of comedy. And uh, I think part of the danger is people presume that audiences are fairly liberal left. And I don't fully agree with that. And I think a kind of um, slightly... It's certainly... They might have been at a time at the maybe the height of alternative comedy, but I think now that alternative basically became mainstream and lots of people go and watch comedy, I think it's split. Yeah. And um, I guess when alternative comedy was starting, the Tories were in power, so political comedy was like anti-Thatcher, and then that's had a legacy uh, that people go, oh, if you do political comedy, it's left-wing. Uh, obviously, in the last few years, there have been more right-wing political comedians, so that's become a thing. I, I always thought it was weird that that wasn't more prevalent. Um so I think it's changing. So I, I think it's partly the legacy of alternative comedy starting when it did and what it was reacting against. And partly that um, you are seeing a growth in right-wing, explicitly right-wing conservative political comedians. And there are lots of conservative comedians that just don't talk about it. So rest assured, there are plenty of conservatives on the circuit. 
Yeah. Now, have you noticed a difference between audiences in, in, in London and elsewhere in the country? I mean, the last time I saw you live, it would have been, uh, it was a birthday present, uh, actually. So it would have been November 2019, just before the 2019 general election. And I remember you telling quite a few Corbyn gags to this audience in the Purcell room on the South Bank. Yes. You know, ground zero for liberal metropolitanism. And there was an unmistakable kind of chill <laughs> ran through the audience when you started taking the mickey out of Jeremy Corbyn. Is that different outside London or was it maybe the Times? I'll tell you what's odd is, that wasn't typical. What I started to find was London, my gigs in London, the anti-Corbyn stuff would go better than it went anywhere else. That it would really go big in London. That there was a kind of resistance, certainly in my audience. Now, I guess I attract an audience of... of Left and right, but fairly mainstream left and right. So that's not that um, surprising. But yeah, at, at times... Now, I deliberately structure my show so that it's... Whack the Tories first, because they're in government. That like makes sense to start with the Prime Minister and do a load of Boris stuff. And then the Labour stuff's always about halfway through. <laughs> I mean, in Edinburgh that year, for the last two or three Edinburghs, when I would really go for Corbyn, people would walk out. They would physically leave, you know, and often it was guys that looked like him, you know, um, bearded, kind of grey-haired guys. I remember one guy, and this was, and I was, you know, rightfully thrashing him on anti-Semitism. You know what happened? I don't think people, people just sort of dismiss it like, oh, it was a normal political row. This was open racism in the Labour Party, and women needed police protection. This is completely unacceptable stuff. But because he was their guy, they felt kind of duty-bound. And they can sit there and laugh about all the stuff about Boris, all the stuff about Trump, all the stuff about Sturgeon, all the stuff about Farage. And when it was Corbyn's go, oh, they couldn't handle it. Oh, and I would always make sure, because, uh, and anyway, I, I, I never want to be lazy in the stuff that I'm writing about. Always made sure it was like factually rigorous and that the jokes were sort of legit on that basis, that it wasn't, I wasn't making stuff up. It was all kind of, and when, I would always say, what is it that you disagree with? I, and one guy just said, I can't hear you talk about Jeremy like this. And it was the piety, you can't, why are you attacking Jeremy? I mean, I remember I used to give Ed Miliband um, a hard time. Because, he, you know, he was the Labour Party to defeat. And anyway, I'd take the mick out of them all. People would come up to me afterwards going, what are you doing? You should only be mocking Tories. Or something. They're both terrible. They both deserve to be mocked. You know, I'm not telling people to vote any particular way. I think it's fairly obvious where I stand. But people are like, what, why? You can't attack the left. We're good people. Why are you doing that? And obviously, as the last few years have shown, there are some appalling people on the left. And I think a lot of people... Part of the problem is, people think left-wing means nicer. And, uh, you know, the Corbyn years proved beyond belief that uh, that is not the case. You know, left-wing or right-wing in the mainstream does not make you any morally better than, than your opponent. But... Um, some people just absolutely cannot handle hearing jokes about the left. They take it so... I mean, the SNP are the same. For a while, they were just the most sensitive... In, in the wake of the independence referendum, 2014-15, they couldn't... They were like, no, 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 we're the good people. We're trying to stop the Tories. I was like, yeah, that doesn't make you good. That just means you're a different type of problem. <laughs> and you're, you know, you're in charge. Of course you should be satirised. But that was like, people couldn't believe it. Some of them were just shocked. They're like, why are you having a go at Nicola Sturgeon? She's amazing. Well, firstly, she's not. And, uh, you know, when people say, oh, it's just progressive, I was like, well, tell that to the people who died in care homes or, or, or to the people who've lost loved ones through this awful drug problem that spiraled under the SNP. People don't, actually literally do not want to hear it. 
Like it's offensive to them, you know, and it's because it's so so wired into their identity that I'm left wing because I care. Therefore, if you take the mic out of Jeremy Corbyn, you're saying you're punching down. That's the problem. They saw it as punching down. Rather, I was like, this guy is the leader of the opposition. He's the next in line to be prime minister if his if his plan works. He's not attacking the leader of the opposition. Is not punching down. Attacking the first minister of Scotland is not punching down. These people are powerful. And when they make mistakes, they deserve to be lampooned. And when they lie, they deserve to be lampooned. And I just think some people don't view politics like that on the left no, sometimes. No. I mean, you see that in some of the funniest stuff on the internet, which is the Jeremy Corbyn fan art, you know, which is... Am I right in thinking you're, 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 you're Catholic, or have I got that completely Oh, well, I, I was certainly raised a, a Christian, yeah. My mum was a nun before she had me. Right. Oh. You've done your research here. This is... Uh, well, slightly one does one's best, but there's almost something kind of devotional about some of the Corbyn fan art about it. And, you know, going back to this point about how he was such a kind of marginal and weird figure on the Labour, you know, in the PLP before 2015. But people have, and I think it's because we have had a rough time since 2008. There's a lot of people who have been damaged. And, you, you know, a lot of the people, the kind of the ordinary people you see on social media talking about Corbyn in a devotional way, very often they're people who have had their pips stopped, you know, their benefits and things like that. And he was seen amongst some people as their salvation in some way. And uh, I think that inspires some of the reaction. But it's very rare, isn't it? I mean, look, I would guess that maybe, you know, 10% of the population are partisan. The rest have a view that is uh, more even-handed. That brings me on to something else. Do you think ordinary people sitting in the canteen at the office or whatever, do you think they tell political jokes? Or I'm asking this because a while ago I did some research on political comedy and for people who wanted to know what people thought about political comedy on TV and radio. And maybe they weren't fans of yours, maybe they somehow they managed to avoid you on the media. I don't know quite, <laughs> quite know how they've done that. But... Um, but the idea of political comedy just made no sense yeah. to most people I spoke to. You might as well be, you know, talk about political bricklaying yes. uh, or political van driving or something like that. It was, you know, they like Michael McIntyre. They like the Liverpudlian comedian whose name I've... John Bishop. John Bishop, who is actually quite political in a lot of the material he does. But for them, comedy and politics were like, you know, there's chalk and cheese. The two things didn't go together. Yeah, comedy is escapism for people, you know, as well as saying it'd be like political bricklaying. It'd almost be like saying, would you go and see, like, economist comedy? You'd be like, what? That sounds like the opposite of comedy. And that's the problem that, that I have sometimes is that I avoid, like, the plague ever calling myself a satirist because I just think that sounds so pompous and dull and it doesn't have the word comedy in it. So you're basically saying, oh, this is less funny. And I think the danger is with political comedy because, oh, this can be heavy. And I think people feel that if they're going to see a political comedian, they're going to be hectored and they're going to be made to feel stupid. And this guy on stage is going to go, oh, I'm really clever and you don't get it and they're going to sort of just show off out what they know rather than be really funny. And, and the primary objective of comedy is to make as many people laugh as often as possible, as hard as possible in the time you've got. And um, it's just for me that I'm so obsessed with politics. It, it just always felt like that's what I should be doing comedy about. But in a way, I feel more like I'm an observational comedian who does observational comedy about politics rather than saying oh, this is what you should think, and what do you mean you don't know what's going on in Argentina and all that stuff? Because I, I just think sometimes, fuck it. <laughs> I think the comedy gets lost. I think it's more political than comedy if you're not careful. 
What I would say, I don't think people tell political jokes. I think it's now memes. You know, it's in WhatsApp groups. It's like these people on the internet, when they mock up these things where it's like a party in Downing Street and stuff, they go viral. Yeah. You get millions of views. So people like jokes about their politicians. I think it's more that we've moved from, like, oral gags, although there will be gags that do the rounds. It's kind of in the online social media thing now. It's Photoshop, it's... Cold War Steve, it's stuff like that. Really funny stuff. That's political comedy of a sort. That's satire. It's just that people don't think of it like that. No, I mean, I've certainly noticed that in the last you know, few days. My non-political mates are, you know, on our WhatsApp groups are yeah. chucking stuff. Very often, it's not very funny. But, it, <laughs> but it's, you know, it comes through. People are sharing it like crazy. Just like everything else, perhaps, it's gone peer-to-peer rather than sort of top-down. And that's quite an interesting turn, isn't it? I mean, maybe that's more... To use a poncy word, maybe that's more demotic. Maybe that is, that is, you know, the authentic voice of, of what people think rather than what they're being told to think. So, to kind of round things off, and I've got one question to ask you at the end, but I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> but what's next? I mean, you've got the show on Absolute Radio, football, we haven't talked about that. You've got the shows, you've got a residency in the West End, you've got a very successful book, uh, you've got Spitting Image. I mean, you must be incredibly busy, but what are the plans next? So I'm on tour next year. I have a fortnightly residency in the West End of the show that I do, The Political Party, um, which has just started. And, and you have amazing guests. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you really do have amazing guests. Yeah. I mean, you've had Blair, haven't you? Yeah, Blair's done it a couple of times. Um, I mean, Michael Heseltine, William Hague, Anthony Scaramucci came over from New York to do it the other week. Jeremy Hunt did it this Monday, just gone. Jacob Rees-Mogg's doing the Christmas special. Neil Kinnock's doing the first one next year. I've had Nicola Sturgeon, Sadiq Khan. Um, amazing people who come on and are, you know, totally themselves. And I just think that's such a treat for an audience to see. It's a very... I'm basically a fan of politics in general. I'm an enthusiast, really, rather than an expert. And I just feel like on these nights, I'm so lucky... That I basically get the best seat in the house. I'm so, I mean, there are times when I sat opposite Michael Heseltine for an hour, interviewing him in front of an audience, and you think, oh my God, I can't believe the privilege of this. It's incredible. This basically historic figure is here. And uh, I'm chatting to him. You know, it's just such a... I would, if someone said, oh, you know, Michael Heseltine's doing a Q&A tonight, I'd be like, oh my God, how do I get a ticket? I often think this is the night out I'd, I would come to this show all the time. And in a way, I do. I'm like, I would pay to see this. And I don't mean that because of me. I mean that because of the guests who come on and just open up and tell amazing stories and a mixture of really funny stuff and very heartfelt, very insightful, great stories from inside government, which if you're obsessed with politics, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Um. So that runs uh, until at least June at the Duchess Theatre. And then I also do a podcast with Alice Levine called British Scandal, which it's not the sort of thing I ever thought I'd end up doing, but it's this new sort of podcast, which is, they're like Hollywood blockbusters. So Alice and I have a script, and each series is a different scandal in British history. So the first one we did was the murder of Alexander Litvinenko. The second one was the death of Dr. David Kelly. We did Nick Leeson. Then we did the canoe man, John Darwin. Oh, fantastic. We just recorded a series on Lucan. We've done the Sex Pistols. So that's ongoing. Uh, I've got a couple of things in development, sitcom ideas. And I'll be on tour from February until September next year with my new show, 
clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Okay. Well, Matt, you've been a terrific. I, I said I had one last question. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to put you on the spot slightly. What's the funniest political gag you've ever heard? Oh my god! Well, you know the ones that I remember actually aren't ones told by comedians. They're yes, yeah, politicians' but, gags. Yeah, that's what I meant. I mean, it would have to be all the Hague ones, sort of. Uh, I loved the one when he said the prime minister talks about delivering a first-class health service. He'd have problems delivering a second-class letter. <laughs> that was good. And I remember, I think it was like an ad lib when he said to when it was him against Prescott, and he said there was so little English in that answer. Jack Chirac would have been proud of it. <laughs> What are some of the others? I mean, some of the heckles. I mean, I loved, my. I think my favourite parliamentary clip of the last few years was, I mean, to be fair to Cameron, he was amazing at PMQs. I remember when he got the PMQs where he'd got the list where Corbyn's office had categorised various Labour MPs. It was like hostile, negative but not hostile, and all that sort of thing. Do you remember that? They'd categorised. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Loyal, whatever. And whatever Labour MP got up, Cameron was going... <laughs> well, I I I thought the honourable lady was was meant to not be hostile. You know, it was just it was just a great running gag. But my favourite heckle was when Corbyn, and it's against Cameron, and he says <laughs> something like, "Mr. Speaker, this week I've been in Europe meeting with European leaders, and one of the things they've been saying to me is," and he pauses, and I think it's Tim Lawton goes, "Who are you?" <laughs> <laughs> so funny is Andy Burnham sat next to Corbyn and he's trying to not laugh but Corbyn can't take it he goes no no that's not what they said you know and it wasn't it wasn't a serious suggestion <laughs> well Matt you've been incredibly generous with your time thank you oh no thank you for having me on so much and I hope you know as we head towards the festive season this will perhaps be a little light relief for uh, listeners uh, of our podcast series and that's brings this series of To The Point to a close. And we've had some superb guests uh, from Dambisa Moyo to Andy Burnham himself. We hope you'll listen again in the new year when Portland hopes to bring you more conversations that are thoughtful, interesting, and most important to the point. Until then, have an excellent Christmas and the rest of the holidays and Merry Christmas to you all. Thank you. Thank you, Merry Christmas.